If you compare the total public health care budget across all the provinces, that is lower than the primary health care budget of Oslo. A city of 700,000 people versus a country of almost a quarter of a billion people. That's just to contextualize, you know, how markedly different health is prioritized. And obviously, Pakistan's economy is so much more smaller than Norway's economy per GDP, per capita, and those factors play in. But countries like Pakistan have not financing or not prioritizing health in, in a major way in the past few decades. That is a fact. You are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. As the COVID pandemic continues to dominate world headlines, there is growing interest in better understanding how some countries, especially low- and middle-income countries, have achieved considerable success in responding to this global crisis. Vietnam is one such success story, another is Cuba, and the state of Kerala in southern India has also received much praise for its handling of the pandemic. But for the past few weeks, a rather unlikely success story is emerging. It is that of Pakistan, which has been branded by some as a bright spot, having achieved remarkable progress despite numerous predictions, including one study from June of this year, which had warned of millions of infections and at least 100,000 deaths. But Pakistan appears to have, at least for the time being, defied considerable odds, and the COVID curve appears to be flattening. And although experts say it is too early to claim victory over the virus, Pakistan's somewhat unheralded achievement merits closer attention, especially given the long history of its rather dysfunctional and fragmented healthcare system. My guest is Usman Mushtaq, a Norwegian-Pakistani medical doctor who for the past year or so has been working as an advisor for Pakistan's Ministry of National Health Services, Regulations and Coordination. It was Dr. Zafar Mirza, who until recently was Pakistan's Minister of Health, who actually asked Usman to join him in Pakistan. Usman was on the line from Islamabad, and I began by asking him whether COVID is under control and whether he could point to a set of specific factors that can help explain Pakistan's relative success. Thank you so much, uh, Dan. And uh, great to be uh, able to talk to you. It's been a while since we last met, and uh, I love the fact that you're just jumping straight to it. When it comes to COVID and, and the work that we have been doing, I think it's quite important to give people the perspective of how it is to handle COVID uh, in a low and middle income country versus how high income countries like Norway, you know, like Denmark and other countries have, have, have uh, been faring. I think the first and most important factor is that high income countries obviously have well-developed healthcare systems and health security have uh, maybe not to a large degree, but to some degree, being 
part of the, the, the healthcare system. So you already have quite functioning, uh, you know, tracing systems, you have functioning uh, disease uh, 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 information systems, uh, etc. For a country like Pakistan, um, when we started to work on COVID, a lot of the things that we ended up doing were novel. We had to innovate ourselves uh, to creating these systems that were not in place uh, at, at first time. And if you throw in the additional complexity of governance, a country with you know almost a quarter uh, of a billion population with uh, a very strong provincial coordination um, where you require a national response. I mean, these all factors contribute to complexity that is sometimes even uh, beyond com comprehension. So, so those, I mean, just, just to kind of give you that uh, overview and then coming towards um, the recent successes that we have had, basically what happened in Pakistan was that the chronology of the events were Pakistan at the certain stage of this pandemic were squeezed and sandwiched between Iran and China. So if you recall, you know, when Italy and, and Iran became the hotspots, epicenters outside of China, uh, Pakistan bordered uh, to both China and Iran, and we had a great deal of influx of people coming in from China and Iran. And quite interestingly, given the strong diplomatic uh, push uh, that we made toward China and the early preparations that we initiated, there hasn't been a single case of imported COVID-19 COVID or SARS-CoV-2 from China. So our first cases actually came from Iran and subsequently from, from our European diaspora, which is quite surprising when you think about it. So we had a very, we had a late start. So the first few cases started, uh, came in, in end of Feb and community transmission or local transmission uh, didn't even start until uh, most likely end of March. And then you had uh, community transmission in, uh, in April and, and, and May. So in Pakistan, basically uh, until uh, mid-May, you had a, a global or a universal lockdown across various provinces, and you had various forms of the non-pharmaceutical interventions, the MPIs uh, implemented. And right before Eid, so Eid is the uh, you know, Muslim uh, celebration after Ramadan, um, a lot of the lockdowns were lifted. Uh, it was partially mandated by the Supreme Court as well. And Right after Eid, we saw a quite a significant spike. This is an end of May. We're talking about like in the end week of May. And then in June, um, so these three weeks, so the end week of May and the first two, three weeks of June were very, very difficult. Uh, basically, what we saw were a tendency of overrun healthcare system in the larger cities and basically uh, a positivity ratio that increased quite significantly and quite fast, and we're touching almost 25%. Uh, so from that point, um, uh, obviously, uh, the strategy that we had at that time were, we obviously tried to enhance our testing as much as we could. We tried to enhance our tracing capabilities, isolating and quarantining. And then we started implementing a universal uh, mask. Um, so in crowded spaces or outside uh, settings that it was important for people to wear masks. So that came in place at that time. And then we implemented something we called smart lockdowns. And given that we can't you know, shut down the entire country, it's uh, the Prime Minister Imran Khan has been saying since the very beginning, if you shut down the entire country, millions of people end up in poverty. And we don't know the true cost of that, 
in both human lives and lost economic output. So, so we, we went from that model to smart lockdowns, like lockdowns of smaller areas of, of um, virus hotspot. And in combination, suddenly uh, from mid-June and the third week of June, we started seeing a decline that we're still in. So we saw the peak at between 15th to 20th of June of COVID-19 cases, and it has been declining. So a lot of people have questioned initially that, okay, but testing also declined. Well, testing did not decline as as much, but the most important figure uh, that we are following is the deaths and the positivity ratio, and then also on-ground investigations. And all of them, absolutely everything that we look at uh, shows to a marked decrease in disease burden from uh, a high in mid-June uh, towards uh, what, where we are at the moment. Uh, in the past 24 hours, we carried 20, almost 25,000 tests and had 1,200 positive cases. Um, I won't say that the, the COVID-19 is in fully control. I mean, it's not that we have full information about all the clusters that, that we have. I mean, we, we're not at that stage yet, uh, but we are fastly approaching that stage. What I'm wondering about is that uh, when I read about Pakistan's healthcare system, the general consensus really is that it is confronted by chronic challenges, there's low funding, difficult to align policies in terms of quality. It lags behind a lot of countries. Statistics like the doctor to population ratio is one of the lowest in South Asia. Stunting rates are high. Pakistan still has polio, one of the few countries in the world uh, that still has polio. Uh, health allocation in the national budget is still a disproportionately short uh, in relation to other areas like defense. The general impression is that there are numerous and humongous challenges, and yet you're describing success within this field, given all of these shortcomings. So my question really is, do you see something happening with COVID? I mean, if we were to put a positive spin on this, is COVID going to change fundamentally some of these underlying challenges that the Pakistani healthcare system has faced in the past few decades? The simple, the simple answer to that is that beyond any doubt, COVID-19 pandemic and the outbreak in Pakistan is going to transform the way um, healthcare and health service uh, delivery um, is, is done in, in, in the country. You can imagine that prior to the outbreak, I mean, the, you know, the total budget of the federal ministry, the recurring budget of the federal ministry was smaller than my borough in Oslo's primary healthcare budget, which is like only, you know, 30,000 people. So just to give you a perspective of how underfunded um, the health system have been in the country, basically there is a realization among all segments of society that health security and having a robust healthcare system is an essential for the safety and the well-being of, of the society and for a thriving economy. So what we saw with COVID-19 is systems put in place that allowed for a unprecedented amount of coordination between the civilian, the military leadership, between the federal and the provinces, and that allowed for generating a response from a system that was so broken down that I would say is fairly remarkable. Now, I haven't studied how other low and middle income countries have done it, but 
looking from, you know, I, so I've been in Pakistan for almost a year and seeing the pre-COVID era and the post-COVID era, I mean, there is absolutely no doubt that we're going to benefit quite a lot from the structures that have been put in place, the effort and the emphasis that all segments of the society is placing on health and, you know, public health. So, so, so I would, I would, you know, agree with you that I think, and it's probably not only the case in Pakistan, in most countries that we will start taking health seriously. We will start investing more in health because we realize that if we don't do that, then the consequences are so catastrophic that, you know, it, it almost comes to a breaking point for our societies. And I think COVID-19 have shown us that. So, Usman, one of the things you've just mentioned is the concept of smart lockdowns. And I've been talking to my colleagues in many African countries, but also in India and other places where you have these huge cities with congestion. You have a lot of people working in the informal economy, people um, migrating from rural areas to uh, cities and then living in very uh, difficult circumstances. There are slum areas in many uh, many of these cities on the subcontinent. How do you enforce lockdowns? And, and what is this aspect of lockdowns being smart? Because one of the things I've been reading about is the uh, lockdowns for a few days and then, you know, uh, resuming uh, normal economic activity and then again locking down uh, cities for, for, for a few days or enforcing uh, nighttime curfews. Uh, which is, again, very different from the kind of lockdowns we've seen in many other parts of the world. So if you could um, elaborate a bit on what works and, and what are these smart lockdowns, uh, how do they look like in practice? Basically, we are learning by doing when it comes to implementation of these targeted lockdowns, not the global lockdowns that, that are universal across the country. So the concept of smart lockdown is basically using technology um, in order to identify uh, geographically uh, defined areas where you can place quite a lot of your IPs, the infected, uh, infected people, active infected cases. And then uh, based on their setting, you define a geographic area that you physically uh, close down. So for inwards and outwards movement, you restrict movement within that space as well. And then most importantly, what you also do is that you have an increased level of the public health uh, interventions as you do increased contact tracing, so surveillance, you do increased amount of case isolation, you focus your resources uh, towards these targeted areas where you know that the disease burden is, is higher. Now, all of this is dependent on the fact that you realize where your disease burden is. And that is not an easy task, and that is directly correlated with how much uh, testing you're, uh, you're going to do. So one challenge is that in high-density, low-resource settings, even in you know, some of the slum uh, areas in many low- and middle-income countries in, in large cities, this activity becomes a lot more difficult, obviously because uh, we realize now that in low resource, high density settings, that the amount of testing that is done is, is not that high and, and that it's very difficult to generate a true, uh, true picture of the disease burden. So those are obviously the, the challenges. Uh, however, uh, we're seeing that you know, by this approach, we can safeguard the economy. We can make sure that 
minimum amount of people are impacted by the interventions. Because come to think about it, I mean, these interventions are very, very strong and invasive. When we implemented a global lockdown across Pakistan, and you have, you know, across the border in India as well, the consequences of that to the economy have been catastrophic, right? You have millions of people that are falling into poverty because, because of those, and we can't, we can't have that. So, so the smart lockdowns have become smarter with time as we are learning and as we are improving the, the, the methodology. But, but the base elements, as I mentioned, is you use technology, you identify where your high burden disease areas are, you identify which setting they're in, and then you close them down and you implement uh, public health interventions. What about this uh, lockdown for a few days and then opening up? Do you think that works? There has been a lot of talk about something called on and off strategy. That's basically what you're uh, saying, that uh, you know, in larger areas, uh, you go in and you lock down an entire city or a province and, and you do that in on and off basis because that will help you reduce the disease burden. We opted not to do that because the impact of that uh, were too catastrophic for, for those settings. So e- even WHO actually recommended that in, in the province of Punjab that they implemented this on and off strategy. We believe that the cost benefit of that uh, were just too high. So it's much more useful for us to go on you know, the, the route of limited targeted lockdowns and becoming good at that rather than the more broader lockdowns of entire cities or, or provinces. One of the uh, many challenges, I suppose, not just in Pakistan, on the subcontinent, but all over the world is combating social stigma, people who have been infected, people being exposed to all kinds of rumors on social media, on WhatsApp messages, all kinds of cures being promoted. How do you see that in working out in Pakistan at the moment? Is that a challenge to combat fake news, all kinds of rumors that perhaps are emerging, and then making sure that in the midst of all of this, that the real scientific advice is actually reaching the population? In a society where many people are using social media and where information is readily available, and platforms like WhatsApp, Facebook, Twitter, etc., what we're seeing is that we're not only combating the pandemic, we're also combating the infodemic of fake news. Now, at the start of the outbreak, uh, that was a massive problem for us, uh, making sure that we counter fake news, wrong information about the virus, about the treatments, etc., with facts and, and with experts that, that are trustworthy that could go out to the people and, and talk to them. One of the, the biggest problems that we had were that there had been quite a lot of rumors, especially around the time when the disease started to peak, that people went into the hospitals and the doctors injected them with something and they died. Now, that sounds like a silly rumor to us. I mean, nobody in, for instance, Norway would believe that. But that actually led to quite a lot of people that wanted to avoid getting tested and people that uh, wanted to avoid actually seeking care. 
Now, so so we know these the consequences of these you know fake news and and this sort of a campaign against discrediting the effort that we're doing. You know, the consequences of that is actually in life and death. So. For, from our point of view, we are taking that very seriously, and and there there is a multi-tiered, multi-ministerial group that is working on the fake news uh, aspect. But I think one of the things that COVID has exposed towards uh, us is that the responsibility of uh, social media platforms to make sure that at least from their end that they limit it. And and we have had actually quite good interaction with Facebook. We have had quite good interaction. Uh, there in regards to, and Google as well, on, on how we limit uh, the spread of um, uh, fake news. One of the many challenges, Usman, as you're aware, is, of course, the high cost of healthcare, and often uh, from one's own pockets that one has to pay, unlike, as you know, in our own country, Norway, where we basically, if we do have to go to the hospital, the doctors or the hospital administrators are not going to say, show me the money or show me proof of insurance before we do anything. But in, um, in a country like Pakistan, of course, it is your own responsibility. And I wondered whether you could uh, reflect a bit on that in terms of, say, health insurance policies. I was reading about this one province in the northernmost part, I think, is it Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, where there is this kind of a healthcare insurance called the Sehat Sahulat program that is providing, uh, especially communities living in poverty, with financial coverage. Do you see that having an impact in terms of the COVID response? I mean, in terms of communities willing to go to hospital? Or is it, as is the case, I suppose, in many other parts of the world, COVID is such an emergency that it's all free treatment. But in the longer run, do you see that kind of a health insurance program being scaled up in other parts of the country? Dan, you have really done your homework well, because the you're absolutely right. Like the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, the northernmost western province of Pakistan, and the Sehat Suhulat program, which is a federal program for providing health insurance to the most needy part of the population has proven to become very successful. And it's actually one of the best run public health programs that we have in the country. And the reason why is because the program is based on actual data and it's based on impartial data. So we conducted a survey, a belt survey, which was very detailed, internationally praised, that could identify people that were you know, at the bottom of the pyramid and we made health insurance, uh, government-supported health insurance available for them. So they get these cards called the Sayed Suhulat program cards. Now, basically what that does is that it provides inpatient coverage up to $4,500 per year. That's quite a lot of money. And it protects these families to not fall into poverty if they fall ill and are in requirement for longer-term treatment. That model is gradually expanding. It's not expanding fast enough. We know that. But over the past few years, it is now creating an impact. Sehat Suhulat program, the health insurance program, is not directly tied up with the COVID work. However, as, as you aptly mentioned, as this program develops, these you know, in infectious disease and these types of new threats that emerges um, uh, in order for us to make sure that a certain population doesn't fall into poverty because they have to cover their healthcare costs because of this, 
um, um, I mean, that's the natural progression and talks about that have already initiated. And we have also actually started to talk, talk about how we're going to, how we can connect the Sayasulit program with, uh, with, with COVID-19. Now with COVID-19, the interesting thing is on the government level, uh, we have uh, made sure that the most expensive treatment, so remdesivir, uh, which is quite expensive, is now being made available for free using the same template of, you know, wealth, of, you know, who, uh, a wealth assessment uh, to those patients who really require it. Dexamethasone is quite cheap. So, so most of the treatments are actually quite cheap, but it's just some of them, remdesivir, et cetera, that, that require government interventions. And we have put in place mechanisms for that. I think the more interesting question is the vaccines and how that would be made available for, for people. What is your view on that in terms of vaccines? Because that is going to be a global public good. And you already have all of these reports in the international media about rich countries trying to make sure that there's enough for their own populations. How do you think that's going to impact Pakistan? I mean, give us a sense of the kind of discourse, the policy debates there. Do you feel that Pakistan will be perhaps last in line, one of the later ones to receive a possible vaccines? Uh, is there a debate about funding indigenous trials? Just give a sense of the kind of debates that you're a part of there. Given the nationalistic discourse that we're seeing on COVID-19 response across countries, obviously most governments are interested in protecting their own populations and that's their prime objective. And given that intellectual property and vaccine production is limited to specific geographies. Now, there is obviously an inherent threat that vaccine, the question about vaccine availability for low resource, low and middle income countries can become problematic. I mean, that's there. And we realize that. Pakistan, I think, is quite well placed uh, when it comes to making sure that a potential vaccine, uh, I mean, it's very important to understand there is not just one potential vaccine. I mean, there has been more than 150 different vaccine initiatives and 12 or more than a dozen of them are initiatives that we're following with quite keen interest. I think we're quite well placed to make sure that we use the infrastructure that we have put in place, the international collaborations that we have you know, we have Gavi, we have various other international organizations that have supported uh, Pakistan. And then we have our diplomatic engagements with countries like China, where quite a lot of the vaccine development uh, is also taking place. So, so we can make sure that we reap from that and, and we make vaccines available at, at soon as they, they you know, are available at the, at the international level. Um, I think, though, a lot of low and middle income countries will struggle because there has to be somebody that pays for these vaccines. And, and we're talking about quite a large cost. The way that we're thinking about this is we have, first and foremost, uh, we have implemented a task force that is high level task force, multi-ministerial, that is just looking at the question of vaccines and their availability. There will, there will obviously be a tiered approach on how vaccines become available. And at the Front of the line will be our uh, frontline healthcare workers. I think that there is a unanimous understanding um, of, of that. And then we're creating a priority list on how, when the vaccines become available in, in tranches, that who will be ending up getting them first. But but that's the thing that I can tell. Like it will be the frontline healthcare workers that will be prioritized, obviously for obvious reasons, and and then it will roll out. Um, so so we we do have a fairly well developed 
mechanism for for delivering vaccines as well. So we're we're not too concerned about the delivery aspect. But you're right. I mean, there is an inherent threat that you know because of this issue being nationalistically approached by many governments that um, that countries like Pakistan can come at a disadvantage, and we have to employ all the um, all the tools that we have in our toolbox in order to make sure that that, that isn't the case. Among the many things that make you a super interesting guest for this podcast, Osman, is the fact that you have feet very strongly implanted in two different worlds, Norway and now in Pakistan. And you've been working there for, I suppose, a year or more. And I wanted you to reflect a bit on, given your familiarity with the health system in Norway and policymaking on health, funding healthcare systems, this kind of making sure that there's more or less universal access and coverage. What would you say? And I know it sounds a bit weird to compare Norway and Pakistan, but in terms of health policymaking, in terms of not just funding, but the way in which or the role and impact of research-based knowledge that feeds into political decision-making in terms of bureaucratic understanding of what works. How would you compare these two, what on paper appears to be very different societies? It's like, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen the show called Stranger Things, where you have like a normal world and then you have an upside down world. I have indeed. It's a fascinating show. <laughs> yeah. So basically, I mean, that's how I would compare Norway and, and Pakistan. I mean, if you just start comparing just the figures, I mean, I, I am a numbers person. I mean, I, I gave you an, a statistics earlier. Let me give you another statistic. If you compare the total public health care budget across all the provinces, that is lower than the primary health care budget of Oslo. A city of 700,000 people versus a country of almost a quarter of a billion people. That's just to contextualize, you know, how markedly different health is prioritized. And obviously, Pakistan's economy is so much more smaller than Norway's economy per GDP, per capita, and those factors play in. But countries like Pakistan have not financing or not prioritizing health in, in a major way in the past few decades. That is a fact. Now, with this government, uh, Imran Khan's government, PTI, basically one of their uh, biggest goals were to make sure that social services, education, uh, social protection services, health, etc., were were prioritized. And, and we're seeing some early results of that. So, so the healthcare budgets are increasing. And I think, as we were speaking about earlier, COVID-19 will, will help towards that. When it comes to policymaking, now, in a country like Norway, and you're, it's, it's interesting that you made me compare Norway to Pakistan, but in a country like Norway, healthcare policy, uh, I mean, the health minister is potentially the second most important person in the cabinet after the prime minister, right? I, I, I mean, it's, it's a public discourse that people actually vote based on which party that they believe uh, will end up delivering them the best healthcare system. I mean, that's a part, large part of the notion. In a country like Pakistan, that is absolutely not the case at all, right? Like the health minister is not the most influential person in, in, the, in the cabinet. Um, and you don't really invest in, in, in healthcare systems and in, in governance in health. So, so what we're left with is a system that is neglected and a system that is neglected that is 
basically run by a bureaucracy which lacks technical expertise, that ends up producing not the best results, even with the limited funding that, that is available. Now, with the current setup that we have and with this government and with the current health minister, who obviously I'm biased here because I'm his advisor, but what I am at least seeing is, is, is a great deal of change. So our, our policymaking now, um, everything that we base our basically interventions on are based on solid, uh, solid evidence. Um, that's what we go by. Now, the scales are obviously much larger. The scrutiny is not as deep as what you would see in Norway. So in Norway, you know, a sitting health minister would get everything served that is well-researched, well-documented, well-discussed, while the case here would be quite the opposite, where you would get a lot more raw data uh, coming into the, the prime decision-maker. And that because the decision-maker, luckily in this instance, is a technical person, Dr. Zafar Mirza, who, you know, is a, a leading authority on health systems, that helps. But if you don't have that, then, I mean, that's a major challenge. So, so, so it's, it's to a large degree dependent on the people, while in a country like Norway, the system is so good. So you, regardless of who you put as a health minister, it doesn't really matter because the system will continue working. And I'm sure you've been reading some of the papers, or the Norwegian papers. Some of the challenges, I think, for Norwegian politicians, and particularly their health minister, is not necessarily to get people to abide by lockdowns or uh, certain types of behavioral change. But after a while, after people have been obedient for a while, there's this clamor for what some would perhaps term as first world problems, like the freedom to visit one's second home or a cottage in an area of, say, Sweden, which is still a red zone, the ability to travel for summer holidays, or the ludicrous example that we've had the last two days where the media was actually following live two flights arriving from Spain to Oslo just in time or just before the deadline for quarantine from, for incoming passengers from Spain because Spain has suddenly become a red zone again. So I suppose they're very, very different kinds of problems. But I, I do think also that here, after a while, you know, there's this continuous pressure, I suppose, to justify things. And, and particularly because the evidence is not necessarily always well established, there's always new knowledge coming out, new studies. I suppose it must be one of the most difficult jobs to have, really, even in Norway. But I wanted to ask you about your own boss, the, your health minister, because I read that he had uh, got COVID. How's he doing? Well, before I before I get to that, I just I just want to say that you actually took the words out of my mouth because I was actually going to mention the the wall to wall coverage of the two flights landing right before midnight in Norway, and because you know that and that was like the major news. It's just for me standing where I am, and obviously I am a Norwegian, so seeing that it, it yeah, it's it's just it feels very surreal. I have to admit that you know the, the, the issues that we're dealing with here versus you know what what the Prime coverage time, uh, news coverage time in, in Norway is, is is just fascinating. But to be honest with you, my conclusion with that is, I mean, I find that surreal and weird. But at the same time, we should be very, very happy that in Norway that we can talk about these things, and that's our biggest worry. You know, <laughs> it just tells you, you know, where the uh, where you know how far we have progressed as a society and how good actually the systems are. Now. 
yes, you know, being a health minister in any country is, is an incredibly challenging position uh, as the prime decision maker on, on health policy. And I think it becomes, I mean, in a country like Norway, because it's very difficult to please everyone and you will always have opposition and you can never be perfect. And in countries like Pakistan, because of the factors that I mentioned earlier, because you have weak systems and you get a lot more raw information and a lot is riding on you as a person. So, so you know, the challenges are there, but they're different uh, in, in nature. Uh, Dr. Zafar, uh, thankfully, is recovering well from, from COVID. Um, he is a type of a person, even though he was sick and displayed symptoms, you know, he was from his home working uh, on a daily basis. So he never really tuned off. And, and that, I think, shows just the de determination that, that that person have. And I think having people like that leading the health ministries and health policy making, I think, makes a huge difference for countries that do not have these well-developed uh, systems. You know, I suppose when you have important uh, leaders, politicians, prime ministers, ministers, celebrities uh, being infected, I suppose it hits home, the message hits home quite differently, right? I mean, the fact that health is usually an arena of great inequality in, in most parts of the world, but COVID has in many ways leveled the playing field, right? And I wonder whether and I've, and I've heard and I've read that several prominent politicians in Pakistan uh, have uh, COVID. Do you think that has hit home uh, the message that we are all in the same boat and that COVID is just leveling these inequalities? Do you think that is having more of an impact? People feeling that, you know, they can't take medical advice more lightly. Maybe you have to wear masks. This kind of attention on celebrities, do you think that helps? in terms of making more com people compliant? Dan, I would like to disagree with the notion that COVID-19 is leveling the playing field. I would say that in most societies, and particularly in low and middle income countries, COVID-19 is actually increasing the disparities in, in the society because yes, there is a segment of society, I mean, all segments of society uh, are, are hit, but who are hit the hardest, right? I mean, um, basically the people that do not have access to a healthcare system, people that are hit incredibly hard by the non-pharmaceutical interventions, the, you know, the lockdowns and other interventions, people, you know, that millions of people that lost their jobs. I think those are the people that are hit the, the hardest. Um, and, and quite interestingly, the, the discourse here uh, have been fascinating with the, with the fact that our prime minister have been saying that the implementation of strong interventions like locking down the entire country is not feasible because it is hitting down on on the most needy, the low, lowest, you know, the bottom of the pyramid uh, in, 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 in this country. While it has been a strong opposition from upper middle class, middle class, upper middle class, um, and people that are doing relatively well to actually lock down. So, so you've actually seen, you know, the opposite of, 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 of this. But, but uh, yeah, in, I mean, in Pakistan, quite many prominent people have gone COVID. Uh, luckily, for most of them, it's gone well. Um, most of the ministers, there haven't been any um, casualties, at least in the federal cabinet. 
so, so it's quite interesting, you know, how the how the discourse uh, in in Pakistan is in regard to um, how most of the world would probably think it is, you know. Uh, you're right. I, I didn't mean that it is. I, I suppose it wasn't. A, I shouldn't be saying it was leveling the playing field. I'm very aware that, uh, especially in very congested areas, people uh, struggling uh, who live depending on the uh, informal economy, who don't have a regular salary, who don't have a big home, who live uh, in a large joint family, who are um, dependent on going out to buy fresh food every day, uh, working and, um, and, and really needing their daily labor to be able to afford food. So those are the people most vulnerable. I, I totally agree with you. I was just you know, thinking about the fact that COVID is something that you really, even if you are the prime minister, you can't really make sure that you are totally protected. I suppose it was this kind of idea that it, it is um, affecting everyone. You know, even, even the rich can be affected. Let's move on to a broader set of issues, global development agendas. And I've known you, of course, in Norway and also internationally to advocate nutrition policies. You've been affiliated with the EAT Foundation, in addition to, of course, your interest in, in health. You've been interested in, in the politics of development. I know that you have active political affiliations in Norway. And I was wondering whether we could um, discuss the broader issue of, say, the global development agenda like the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, which talk about poverty reduction, uh, zero hunger, improving health, but also address environmental issues, climate change issues, inequalities, you name it. It's uh, this global agenda that... I suppose, gives this uh, feeling, and as we've been talking about earlier, that we are all in the same boat, and it's no longer a development agenda just for low- and medium-income countries, but also for high-income countries, rich countries like Norway. Given your background with EAT and also your recent experience in Pakistan, how do you see the SDGs being implemented? We only have around 10 years left, but do you see growing political awareness on the SDGs? Is there growing political enthusiasm? Or is it just one of the numerous global development agendas out there? Dan, I think the, there is a pre-COVID world and there is a post-COVID world. Uh, and I think that's the same case with the global development agenda. And I think obviously, you know, SDG gave us um, a, a roadmap for, for where we wanted to be in, in uh, 15 years' time or now in a decade's time. I think that has taken a backstage because of the response that we're seeing. And I would anticipate that quite many countries and also on the global level, there will be a readjustment, a realigning of, of, um, of the goals. The SDGs will still be there. Of, of course, I don't think, you know, th th that will change, but how we approach them, I think, will, will end up changing a little bit and the priorities in the countries will end up changing. I mean, we, we, we can't hide the fact that uh, because of COVID-19, the discussions around sustainability have taken a backseat. Um, we can't hide the fact that because of, uh, you know, COVID-19, governments have become much more nationalistic. We can't hide the fact that uh, even, uh, uh, you know, international bodies Crucial international bodies like WHO have been used in a political dogfight between two very powerful countries. 
So, so, so I think all of that is, is just to illustrate the time ahead of us, I think, would be much more complex and much more challenging. But we know for a fact that from COVID-19, we need to build back better. I mean, economies have taken a hit. People have fallen into poverty in, at staggering numbers. I mean, nutrition, uh, undernutrition, stunting, um, we will see a marked increase of, of, of that and, and so many other things in the society. So, so it's quite important that uh, now more than ever, there is a need for global solidarity and we need to now think about what does a post-COVID world look like? I mean, now we're talking about vaccines. Yes, that's the most immediate concern, but we need to see international cooperation now at, at, at the high, highest level. And, and I, I mean, unfortunately, my predictions are that because of, because of these kind of nationalistic trends, that our work is just becoming even more difficult, but as much more important. And that's like the, my, my high level view on this is, and it will be interesting to see how donor countries like Norway, like, you know, um, other European and, and, and the US, how they behave in, in the post-COVID era. You know, I share your views and concerns on this because I'm a little worried that indeed whatever we were talking about before COVID has now just stopped, has been sidelined, and uh, which is not unusual or unexpected because politicians, everybody really, we humans, we are fixated on crises. We like a crisis-induced response is natural, but I suppose the challenge in Pakistan, in India, in on the African continent, in many countries around the world, is to ensure that while one is combating COVID, one doesn't forget these other agendas. There's still poverty, there's still undernutrition, there's still stunting, as you mentioned. There's still the problem of lifestyle diseases. I was reading again that Pakistan, of course, is, um, has a, a very high level in terms of diabetes prevalence all kinds of preventable diseases. So my question is, how, how can we do this? How can we have a focus on COVID, which is the immediate thing, but also work simultaneously on others? Is that not possible? Are we all just waiting for the vaccine and then we'll continue doing the rest? If so, we are really in, you know, we are going to be in trouble, all of us. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think if nothing happens, we will be in, in trouble. However, I, I have seen quite a lot of movement um, on, the, on the development side. I mean, specifically when we talk about food, food systems and, and nutrition, there is quite a lot of movement there in order to push for the agenda that, um, I mean, not only uh, do we need to build back better, we need to focus on obviously what's the outfall of COVID, which is, you know, undernutrition, um, uh, hunger, uh, increased level of stunting. Uh, but beyond that as well, like, I mean, some of the risk factors that we see uh, that directly leads to increased mortality for a, a pathogen like SARS-CoV-2 is unhealthy lifestyle. I mean, it's, it's you know, heart-related uh, heart disease, cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, etc., which significantly increases the chance of mortality from COVID-19. So, 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 so linking those together, and then if you want to go even further upstreams, you know, making the argument that because of the way that we are making our food, because the way that we are treating the nature, we are increasing quite significantly the likelihood of further spillovers like virus zoonotic disease transferring from 
uh, animals to human, which can uh, to a large degree also cause, you know, would cause this and which will most likely end up causing more pandemics or outbreaks uh, in, in, in the future. So it's, it's about making sure that we use the newfound interest in health from COVID and that we translate that into other arenas. But there has also been talks around how do we use the global governance for health um, that can be created from COVID on other fields of international cooperation, um, including uh, environment, because we know, or we hope at least, that from COVID-19, I mean, there is obviously a risk here between the two giants that are fighting the the geopolitical fight, uh, is that the global governance system can be weakened, but the hope would be that the global governance on health would be strengthened uh, by uh, by this uh, this pandemic. And then one, I think, important aspect that we tend to forget, and that is how does the virus and how does all of this, you know, uh, crisis that is going on, how does that impact areas where we have active conflict? I mean, we have literally forgotten about countries like Yemen, uh, where we have so many different cascading crisis and on top of that you have covid and on top of that you have so much other uh, so many other issues so so making sure that we are firefighting at the right places and at the same time that we're keeping a, a longer uh, view is is going to be essential based on your current experience in pakistan osman and also in terms of the research that you've conducted and and your general knowledge on this topic, what would you say would be the most effective ways in getting people to to change their behaviors? How do you get people to stop smoking? Because I know that is a big problem still in, in Pakistan. Uh, hypertension is a problem. Diabetes, we've mentioned, is a problem. Heart disease, the kind of food, the lack of exercise. How do you, what, what works in this field? How, how can you get people to change uh, and get better, you know, uh, to adopt better lifestyles? The simple answer here would be just implement policy interventions and just make all of these things uh, more difficult. But it's not as easy as that because the impact of just going straight forward and just banning everything is obviously not going to work and it's technically not even possible. The most important thing is it's what we know work from a public health point of view is we need to make sure that, you know, the health literacy in the population increases at the same time as you're putting in place policy interventions that make unhealthy behavior more difficult and more unsustainable. And there are questions in that as well is because what you end up can end up doing is that people that have unhealthy behavior are generally the ones that are poorer and and you're actually hitting them even even harder so you have to think about that in a in a comprehensive way so i I think it's a it's a complexity Uh, however because the focus is always on firefighting because the focus is always on combating crisis and because the system is not rigged to face multiple challenges at once focusing on these these complexities that we're talking about and you know, the long-term behavioral change in the population, I think, becomes just a, a second priority, right? And fixing that, I think, would be essential for a country like Pakistan and other low- and middle-income countries. You are, of course, Norwegian, but you've, given your Pakistani roots, you've been seconded, you've been asked to work in Pakistan. How has that experience been so far? Because 
you actually represent, uh, you know, your, your education is from Norway. It's very first world. You're coming there addressing many uh, low-income country-related challenges. You're rolling up your sleeve and um, gaining a lot of attention. How has the reception been from your other colleagues in Pakistan? Are you this foreigner coming in and, and telling them what to do when they actually have a lot of local expertise? Or has it been, um, have these issues not, not been a problem at all? The biggest challenge, I think, for people that are coming from outside of any system, and particularly when you're coming with the notion, I mean, yes, we have been, or I have been working on global issues for, for a while, but it's a very different thing when you're on the ground not working for a structured UN organization uh, or international organization, but working in the government machinery, which is so complex. I mean, I can't even start by explaining how big of a culture shock it was for me when I, when I first came. So the approach that I had to this was basically, you. it's very important to stay humble in, in the fact that you know, people that are managing these systems, I mean, they have been in it for many, many, many years. Most of them are senior and most of them have quite a large uh, degree of understanding. I mean, they're bogged down by their own systems, but, you know, these are fantastic people. So I saw uh, some of the most brilliant minds at play uh, when I started working in, in, in Pakistan. And, and I see the difficulty that they operate in, which makes it even more impressive. So I, I've, I've tried to stay... Um, um, humble. Obviously, I cannot tell anyone, uh, you know, what to do because it's always a teamwork. And I've been quite lucky with the fact that I've been working quite closely with the minister himself. So, so the team around it have been fantastic, and and uh, I think we've we've made some good progress. But it is obviously a, a culture shock, and and I'm here on on a time bound period. I'm not I'm not moving to Pakistan. But the question about you know brain drain and brain gain in health is 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 of critical importance and and we actually worked on this issue uh, particularly when I moved to Pakistan and one of the things that we ended up doing was to establish a uh, initiative particularly focusing on how we can harness all the brain that has left Pakistan in the health field and how we can use that for health sector development in Pakistan. We launched. Uh, the Prime Minister launched an initiative called Pakistan Diaspora Health Initiative, or Yarane Vatan, which means friends of the country. And, and that has been fantastic to just see the response that we're getting from there on how we can engage people that are abroad, that wants to contribute, but not necessarily move permanently, but they want to contribute with their time and energy, not only money. And I hope that what we have developed here with this initiative on how to actually create these engagements between diaspora health professionals. Uh, I mean, people like myself, I'm not born, I'm not born in Pakistan, but obviously I do carry this connection because of my heritage, you know, and there are so many countries that can benefit from, from, from their diaspora, uh, low and middle income countries, if, if that is spent, spent right. So I hope that can become a model. So a final set of issues, Usman, and that has to do with cricket. Of course, Imran Khan was a big hero of mine. I've never seen a better all-arounder in my life. Of course, I still follow cricket a little bit. It turns out also you have a namesake, Usman Mushtaq, who plays for the UAE. Are you a big cricket fan yourself? I mean, I, uh, I am a little on and off. 
So I, uh, I tend to follow when there is a World Cup um, and I tend to follow when there is like interesting series going on. But uh, Pakistan as a country haven't been faring that well. I mean, they're a little on and off. So I, <laughs> I'm uh, in Norwegian, we call it Medgangs, uh, supportish. Right. So you're not a proper cricket fan then. You have to support your team even when they're not doing well. But one of the things I've also noticed, at least in, in the Indian discourse when I read the papers, is that you know people can uh, accept a lot of invasive procedures, but the absence of cricket on the Indian subcontinent is just, you know, it's just awful. So is, is, has that been a discussion that can you resume cricket in Pakistan or has it been resumed? The, that's a good question, actually. One of the first discussions that we had in start of March, because at that time, so in India, you have the uh, Indian Premier League, IPL, I think it's called. And then in Pakistan, you have the Pakistan Super League, PSL. And PSL was actually in its final, final few matches as we were discussing a full lockdown um, in, in start of March. And that became a quite big of a discussion point that should we close down the game, should we not close down the games? And also because, you know, Pakistan is a country that hasn't had international cricket being played here for, for a fairly long time because of the terror attack that happened in 2009, I think, against the Sri Lankan team. So it was the first time that a full PSL series was played in the country and people were uh, happy and, and it brought, you know, crowds in tens of thousands and, you know, cricket was finally back home. So that was a major decision uh, in order to uh, make sure that cricket could resume, but then we had to pull off the crowd. So that's what ended up happening was that the PSL matches did continue, but with empty stadiums. And most likely that will be the case for for how most sporting events uh, will end up happening going going forward, at least until we have something you know viable as as a vaccine. Usman Mushtaq, it was such a pleasure to have you on this podcast, all the way from Islamabad. Thank you so much, Dan. Always a pleasure to speak with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the news among your friends and share it on social media. The Twitter handle for this podcast is GlobalDevPod. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.